Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Friday evening, Lindsay, my wife, and I went to the Houston Ballet. Very bougie, I know, fancy. Woby and Nancy went with us, and you might not know this, a young lady who uh, comes and, and worships every now and then in our congregation uh, is part of the Houston Ballet uh, Theater, and so we were there to see a ballet, and uh, it was pretty fancy. You should be a little bit impressed. I was wearing a tie. I have witnesses. And yes, I only put on the tie for that cheap laugh right there. That's where my life has come to. Something happened, though, at this ballet that was kind of life-changing for me. Toward the end of the ballet, you can kind of tell that they're starting to wrap it up, and each of the main characters gets like their own kind of dance, and everyone else just looks at them, and they pose at the end, and there's applause. Everyone, everyone cheers. And then the next character does it, and the next character does it, and you're like, okay, we're coming to the end of this ballet. We want to recognize everyone's hard work and their beautiful performances. But then once every character has come through, like some of them come for a second time and they get their own dance again and then they get this another extended applause line and you're kind of wondering, I was kind of wondering, are we going to wrap this up at all? What's, what's happening here? And then they bring the director out and as a group, right, they, they wait and they get applause and I kid you not, they then walk backwards five steps or so and walk forward five more steps, perform a deep bow, which I think, I don't know, I don't think that's what gets it for them. <laughs> And applause. And I was like, this is all I've ever wanted. I made a horrible career choice. The only thing I've ever tried for in my entire life is for you to just stand and applaud me after a sermon. And then for me to be like, and walk back, more applause. But I cope and I move on. Still, I manage. In the ballet, there were these characters. It was Sleeping Beauty Ballet. I don't know if you're as fancy as me and know about it, but they're dressed up as cats in the full cat outfit, and, and they're adult human beings dressed up as cats, and so, yeah, it's kind of silly, and they really get into it. I mean, they've got the movements. They have really become one with the cat, and, and when they first come out to perform, everyone... It's kind of unsure whether we should laugh or not. Because you don't want to like, disrespect this person's art, right? Are we supposed to laugh? Is this a joke? And then as the ballet goes on, everyone's kind of like, okay, they're trying to be funny, right? This is something we're supposed to laugh at. The story I want to start to explore with you this morning causes much the same reaction in a lot of people. As they, they read it, they kind of pause and hesitate and go, is this for real? Is this, a, is, is this serious? Is it a joke? Is it supposed to be funny? Are we supposed to be laughing? Are we supposed to take this seriously? You know, this is the first Sunday in the season of Lent, and it's a time in the Christian calendar every year where we take time to prepare for the celebration of Jesus' resurrection. The Christian calendar gives us an opportunity to put our lives in sync with the different rhythms that life brings. And with this season of life for you and I, 
I'd like to invite you to adopt Jonah as a companion partner. I'd like for you to read it and reread it and then read it from the back to the front and take the perspective of this character and then take the perspective of another character then ask questions and then ask harder questions and then think about how it might apply to your life and then rethink about how it might apply to your life. If you would, open up with me to the book of Jonah. Now, it's a little bit of a challenge for, for many people to find. One, because it's part of these minor prophets. Two, it's a very short book, so there's no margin of error. It's two pages. If you're in a black hardback around us, it'll start on page seven, seven, four. It's a very short book. Again, just two pages in our, in our Bible, so my kind of thing, right? <laughs> in fact, uh, they make versions of this for children uh, with pictures. I mean, you can't get better than that, right? And unfortunately, a lot of the children's versions of Jonah leave out about half of the story, and, and we, we, we might see why as we read through the, the book of Jonah. When you think of Jonah, when you hear that name, when you think of that story, what comes to your mind? The whale, the fish, right? I mean, this is, this is the, the character. This is the thing that hooks in our imaginations when we ask the question, why is this one story, as peculiar as it is, endured the test of time? Why was it included in our Bibles? Probably part of that answer is just that image. If you took this plot and you did everything the exact same, but instead of Jonah going through a trial in the belly of a whale, he got, got sick with the flu and then recovered after a few days, no one probably would have rewritten that story and copied it and put it down to generation to generation to generation. Yeah, the whale kind of captures our attention. But with stories like Jonah, we're faced with the temptation that we have with much of Scripture, which is to be overly familiar with it or to sanitize it and sterilize it so that it's a cute story for our kids. And I wanna, what I want to argue over the next four weeks is that Jonah is actually, I think, one of the most profound and one of the most subversive and challenging stories in our Bible. Maybe second only to the gospel narratives of Jesus. Let's, let's, let's read together. We'll, we'll start the story. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So far, so good. This is, this is fairly common. God's word comes to a prophet, gives him a direction. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, which is a very interesting word. Fun to say, difficult to say. From the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, anytime you see repetition in the scriptures, this is them highlighting something for you. And you see this already in just the first few verses. A couple things stand out. One, Jonah's going to this city called Tarshish. And, and two, he's trying to go there to get away from the presence of the Lord. All you really need to know at this point is that this city is in the exact opposite direction, direction of, of Nineveh, the city he's told to go to. So the Lord hurled, or more literally flung, a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship 
threatened to break up. In the Hebrew, this is personified. The ship is actually saying, like, I'm about to break apart. I can't handle this storm. Then the mariners were afraid. Each cried out to his God. This is a group of foreign sailors. I hope there is not a member of the sailor union in the congregation, and I don't offend anyone, but at least in the ancient world, they were not known for their morality. They were not known for their manners. This is a group of ragtag foreigners, probably lots of different religions and superstitions, and they, they're all crying out to their gods. But well, then they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. As an insomniac, this is just not nice. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Kind of like drawing straws. So they, they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? And where did you come from? And what is your country? And what people are you? It's like a TSA interview, okay? A very extended conversation during the middle of a storm where their ship's about to break. And Jonah says back to them, verse 9, I'm a Hebrew, and I feel the Lord. Notice Lord in all caps here. That is, your English Bible's telling you this is the personal name of God given to the Israelites. This is the Israelites' God, not the lowercase g gods that exist and are worshipped by other people in the ancient world. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? It grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up. Hurl me, fling me into the sea, and then it will quiet down for you. I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to try to get back to land, but they could not. The sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. Notice the change from God now to Lord all uppercase. Now they're calling out to Jonas, God. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him or flung him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is an odd story, full of very, very odd details. It's not uncommon for a prophet in the Hebrew tradition to hear from the Lord, and then to verbally hesitate. To say, I'm not sure that I can do this, or I'm not sure this is a good idea. But it is very, very unusual for a Hebrew prophet to just do the exact opposite of what God tells them to do. Maybe there was an interaction. We're not told of one. God says, go this way. And Jonah just goes, walks this way. What, what would make a prophet of God go from hearing a direction to very quickly looking over the side of a boat 
So you can throw me off. I mean, that's death, right? What about that call? What about that direction? Makes a, makes a prophet of God go, yeah, it's, it'd be better for me to die. Jonah is, in many ways, a joke. And there's lots of parts of the story, both here and, and as we'll see, continuing in the story, that seem like maybe they're intentionally funny. Maybe it's okay to look at Jonah and go, like, this is kind of hilarious. Like, how bad is he at profiting, right? Like, he should have gone into another career. This is not his thing. He's an anti-prophet. I mean, he's just, he's just kind of a, a joke. He's a, it's a bad excuse for a prophet. And there's lots of ironic ways that this comes through in the story, one of which you compare the sailors, these foreign sailors who don't worship the Lord, to Jonah the prophet of the Lord. And the, the sailors are praying in the storm. He's napping. They're working to save the ship. He snores. They're looking for a divine revelation. He's running from it. They're even willing to show him mercy and hesitant to throw him overboard to save themselves. And then Jonah, who does not go to this foreign city, for reasons we'll explore and ask, ends up accidentally converting all of these sailors. I mean, do you notice this? By the end of this, they're, they're fearing the Lord. This very formulaic language in the Hebrew Bible for those who worship God and, and become his people. Jonah's off doing his own things, you know, drowning in the sea. They're offering sacrifices to the Lord, making vows to him. I mean, one of the, the, the weird things about the book of Jonah is there's no one who compares to him in terms of the, the amount of disobedience, like just the in-your-face, I don't care, I'm not doing this. And there's equally no one who's as successful as him. He's the most successful prophet in the entire Bible, save maybe for Jesus. You know, I've always felt like Jonah and I were a lot alike. <laughs> we're both... <laughs> Kind of disobedient. Okay, well, he's successful at, at some things. It's, it's kind of funny. There's irony here. There's good news for us. I mean, it's, I think, good news for you and me this morning that, that, like Jonah, no matter how hard we try to screw up God's plans for our life or for the world, this, he's still going to make it work out. Even in our disobedience, even in our failure, we meet God there. God accomplishes what he's always wanted to accomplish. If God can work through a mess of a person like Jonah, he can work through you, and he can work through me. It's interesting to me that the Hebrew people wrote stories like this, full of their own flaws. This is not just Jonah, right? The, the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible is full of this. This is not always common to a culture to celebrate their flawed heroes, if you think about it, it's a very interesting question to even think, why do we have this story? Like it had to be written, composed perhaps orally at first and then written down, and then someone had to read it and been like, we should, we should share this with other people. This massive failure who's a leader of ours. And they kept sharing it and they kept sharing it. And then at some point they were deciding what to go into the Bible and they're like, how about that story? Where one of God's leaders just does everything wrong. 
it's kind of miraculous Jonah exists, and Jonah is in our Bible itself. There are ways, I think, that sometimes we, we look at Jonah and say, he's a joke, this is not serious, and we do that to deflect ways that perhaps we're more similar to him than we'd like to admit. Like Jonah, perhaps some of us are unaware of the way our own disobedience hurts and damages the people around us. We so often think of sin and disobedience just in individualistic terms. In the scriptures, that's a ripple effect. What you do is going to affect your spouse, and it's going to affect your children, it's going to affect your community. Perhaps like Jonah, there are storms in our lives or storms in the world where people are being hurt, put in danger, and we're just snoozing. We're sleeping. We're comfortable. Because it's not affecting us or because we don't care about it anyways. Sometimes history is, is just discovering those blind spots. What might it be in 200 years for you and I? Yeah, we might be more like Jonah than we'd, we'd like to admit on the surface level. Again, some good news still here for us if, if we relate to Jonah. It, it seems interesting to me that it was Jonah's confession, it was his guilt that was really the most powerful witness to these sailors that allowed them to come and to worship the Lord. I think it is, again, true that it's often, for you and I as Christians, it's our confession. It's our, it's our honesty about our failures and our weakness that brings God beauty and glory. Do you know what strategy has never worked for really only any organization, but especially the church? The cover-up strategy. And there are specific churches and specific denominations that are going through lots of pain right now. So they thought, perhaps we can protect Jesus by covering up our own failures. The Apostle Paul goes the opposite direction, right? He says, I'm the, I'm, I'm the biggest sinner I can imagine. You lied to your parents, I was killing Christians. Right? As, as weak as I am, that magnifies and shows how beautiful and how strong and how relentless and endless God's grace and love and mercy are. But I think there's something else about this book that makes it so profound, makes it challenging. I think it's actually what we're not told at the beginning of the story. This is a literary device that authors sometimes use. They, they don't tell you what you want to know, or they withhold that information until the end. And so perhaps you've read through the book of Jonah before, but try to read with some fresh eyes this morning. These first few verses, we get a lot of details. We're told what port Jonah goes to. We're told about him paying people to get on this ship with him. And I don't care about any of that. I don't know about you. I could care less. There's only one question on my mind. There's only one thing, really, to think of or talk about when God comes to a prophet and says, do this, and they just run the other direction. What is that question? Why? What about what God says to Jonah makes him say, it's, no, I would rather die than obey you. The longer I've sat with the book of Jonah, and I've been fascinated, fascinated by it for, for many years, the more serious I take him, and the more serious I take the book. There's a clue for us as to why Jonah might act like this. It is, I think, a truth about us as humans. 
that Jonah exposes, which is just our, our motivation and our behavior as humans, is very complex. It's sometimes hard to discern. This is why we're, we're often not as interested in the what happened, but the why it happened, the, the celebrity gossip, the palace intrigue, the royal family. Why? What, 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 what's happening in his heart? What's happening in his mind? What would cause a prophet to do that? And we're not told, and this is intentional. We're not told why. He knows what he's doing when he tells us about the port he goes to and the people he's paying. He knows he's leaving out the one thing we really care about. Why would this ever even happen? Well, we're given a clue, but it, it can be easy to miss, and the clue is the destination of his trip, Nineveh. If you're unfamiliar with Nineveh, it's an important city of the empire Assyria. And around the time, perhaps, that Jonah is set in, Assyria is one of the biggest and baddest empires in the world that the world has and will ever see. They were often a threat for the Israelites. So the only other mention of Jonah in the scriptures comes in 2 Kings, and he succeeds the prophets Elijah and Elisha. And we're told, actually, that he was blessed during the reign of an evil king that God still decided to show mercy on, and they were able to expand Israel's borders and strengthen and, and, and make them solid. And so the Jonah of history, the Jonah from 2 Kings, the son of Amittai, what we were told in the history book is that he actually helps protect the Israelites. That's part of his prophecy from the enemies up north. This call is for him to not build a wall, but to cross one. And it's still the truth in today's world, but it was equally true in the ancient world. Countries and empires were about burning bridges. And in a world of bridges being burnt, Jonah is being asked to build one to hell. And Jonah goes, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Assyria was renowned for their lust and violence and brutality. Stories abound about them burying people in sand, just their heads exposed and leaving them to die, creating these really you know, speculative and, and just weirdly created totem poles of human heads skinning people alive. I mean, it just, they, they, they seem to enjoy, relish, imagining the most brutal ways to dehumanize other people. And we know that Assyria eventually comes and conquers a majority of the Israelites, the northern kingdom. In fact, when this book was most likely written, this has already happened. This Assyrian empire has already come and done these things to the Israelites. Which again, why does this exist? Why would a book like this exist? What purpose would it serve? How much more profound and confusing is this? That there would be a book about the prophet and this empire. We don't even know what the message is right now. But we know that the trip would be dangerous. We know that it's, it's not going to be really a good strategy. No one's going to advise you, right? I mean, all the travel agents in Israel would all tell you, don't go to Assyria. You're not going to be protected over there. Whatever you have to say, it's not going to be received well. Even if you're coming to give them a message of doom and condemnation, some prophets were able to do this from afar, like Nahum. 
And that's, that's, that's an easy task, easier at least, to be able to sit behind a computer and, and throw lobs. It's another thing to, to go into the city gates. I think if we understand how brutal and dangerous and feared the Assyrians were, the relationship they had with the Israelites, perhaps Jonah's disobedience, his refusal, it makes more sense. One scholar said, maybe an analogy would be like asking a Jewish person to walk through the gates of a concentration camp. The thought itself is offensive. This is not God saying, you need to be nice to people. So sometimes this is how we portray Jonah, and, and pastors and preachers and, and people who write children's books do this, right? Jonah just wasn't nice, and he was stubborn, or he was, a, he was just like your generic racist, or he was just over-emotional. That's not, I don't think that's what's happening. I think Jonah has a reaction that we can all understand, which is if we were presented with an idea like that, the knee-jerk reaction are maybe words we don't repeat in church. It's maybe, I can tell you where you can take that idea. And when we get to the end of Jonah, the only thing I'll spoil for you is he still has this opinion. He still thinks it's better for him to die than for this to happen. Which makes it, again, a weird story. There's no character development. (laughs) This is why the second half is not usually in the children's books. Let's just cut it off after he comes out of the whale. This call is a dangerous call. It's a scary one. But I think it's one that we can and should somewhat empathize with. I'd love to invite you, if you don't understand this kind of reaction, to march through northern Iraq in a city occupied by Islamic militant soldiers and, and try to beg an audience with them about how their project is doomed. It's just not wise. It's not a good idea. And if, like Jonah, you have this maybe nagging sense that it, God might actually not give them the justice they deserve, you especially aren't going to want to be a part of this. Sometimes we, we, we think, Jonah, I mean, come on, you, don't want, you just don't want God to love other people other than you? But can we, can, we, can we understand? Maybe Jonah's just saying, no, I understand the kind of evil they've brought into God's good creation. I understand the type of inhumanity that they've unleashed upon the world. No, so there are, a couple, there are a couple echoes in this story that I think help us understand what I'm trying to get at. One scholar says the, the grace of God is sometimes awful to us because the proper response to evil is to fear it and to desire its destruction, not to love it and desire its redemption. Sometimes the call of God is difficult. Sometimes it's hard. Make no mistake, this writer says, the ethos revealed in Jonah poses a more difficult challenge to our lives than that of a magical whale tale. There's some echoes in the story that illuminate what's happening. One of these is the flood story. If you're familiar with the flood story in the book of Genesis, chapter 6 through 8, you'll notice there's a lot of things about the Jonah story that seem very familiar. It seems to have been pretty artfully put together in such a way as to echo the flood story. Throughout the entire story, not just the passage we're looking at this morning, 
But in, in an important way, it diverges. If you remember the flood story, the world is full of very, very wicked people, and God just tries to destroy all of them, except for one righteous man and his family and then the animals. In both stories, there's threats of destruction for a mass group of wicked people. They both have these threatening waters that threaten to destroy, overcome a main character. They both pay special attention to animals in a way that's kind of unique in the, in the Bible. They both have a main character saved in a kind of miraculous and unique way. But the, the wicked people don't die in this one. This is a post-flood story, perhaps exploring what wickedness looks like and God's reaction to wickedness looks like after the flood when God says, I'm not going to do that again. In the flood story, everyone but Noah died, but according to the tale of Jonah, sometimes everybody lives, and maybe that's worse. Maybe that offends our sense of justice even more. Perhaps this is what Jonah is struggling with. It's a story, sure, about disobedience. It's a story about danger and confusion. It's a story about the profound change that we go through as Christians in the moments where our paradigms are burst apart and we're called to rethink our world and re-understand other people. But it's also a story about enemy love. It's also a story about nonviolence. There's another echo in chapter 1 that, that helps us understand this story. This one, though, it's not intentional on Jonah's part. It's, a, it's something that happens later much later than the the story of Jonah is written. If you are familiar with the Gospels, you might remember that in all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's a story where there's a boat and some people on the boat, and there's a storm, and it looks like that storm's about to take all of them out, and there's a prophet on that boat, and luck. And that prophet is sleeping. And who's that? It's Jesus. And anyone who reads that story goes, Jonah. <laughs> That's so Jonah. How Jonah of you. And actually, sometimes we don't pay attention to this. Jesus self-identifies with Jonah repeatedly throughout the Gospels. So he'll, he'll talk about comparing the people asking him to do certain things to the Ninevites needing a sign. He'll say the sign of Jonah is something that's going to help illuminate the greater sign he's about to perform, that the three days spent in the belly of the whale are going to illuminate even more of the three days that take place over Jesus' death and resurrection. The difference between Jonah and Jesus is that where Jonah disobeys, Jesus obeys. Where Adam falls, Jesus succeeds. Jesus crosses the borders. In fact, his whole ministry seems to be doing the things that Jonah was supposed to do in like even everyday situations. He crosses every boundary you can think of. Now, a question I would have for us is, why would Jesus self-identify with Jonah? Oftentimes, we don't think about it too hard, and we go, well, the three days. It's just a good symbol. You're looking at the Bible, anything have three days, it does, it matches up, actually works pretty well. There we go, Jonah and Jesus. Jesus himself is constantly doing this. And there are other prophets to to choose from with better reputations, who made better choices. Why why does Jesus choose Jonah? What about Jonah does Jesus feel like he can relate to? 
perhaps Jesus understands a bit of Jonah's difficulty. Perhaps Jesus understands how challenging it is when he tells his followers in the Sermon on the Mount to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you, to turn the other cheek. Which again is not just a command to be nice to other people, Cynthia down the street. It's about an empire that's oppressing. It's about showing mercy to people who, let me tell you, that don't deserve that mercy. You're not your average criminals. Perhaps Jesus can understand Jonah's mission. Perhaps Jesus sees his life in a sense of taking on that mission and taking it to where Jonah couldn't. And so Jonah, you know, there's one kind of redeeming quality in this first chapter. There's very few to dig out through the story. He's kind of willing to give up his life for the, the sailors. And we know this is true about Jesus. He gave up his life. Jesus calms the storm. He gives up his life for his followers. And, and we might understand now that, that when Jesus is talking to his disciples about journeying to Jerusalem to be crucified, that it might be as confusing as, as, as wondering why Jonah might go to Nineveh. What are, you, what are we doing? What's happening? But Jesus obeys, for Jonah's disobedient. Jesus is the greater Jonah, the obedient Jonah. Jesus is the fulfillment of the story that begins in Jonah. Jonah is a tiny little flashlight that shines the spotlight on Jesus. And Jesus is the one who, through his death and resurrection, opens up a way for you and I to be obedient when perhaps Jonah could not. We've seen death defeated. Make no mistake, the call of the Christian is not easier than Jonah's call. Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. We're still told to love our enemies. They're very difficult things for us to work through. But now, with a picture of a future world, with the promise of death defeated, with the power of the Holy Spirit within us, a door has been opened where we can follow, where Jonah, Jonah just had to, to run to the sea. And so as we begin the season of Lent, the time where we ask ourselves, where, what has God been asking me to do? What have I been avoiding or not doing? A question I have for Jonah is, is if, he, if he would have known beforehand that all this stuff would have happened anyways, would he still have done it? Like if he knew the cost of it, would he, would he still have done it or would he just obeyed even though he didn't want to? I mean, if we knew the cost of our delayed obedience or of our disobedience, if we knew really how much it robbed us of life, how much it robbed the people around us of life, would we, would we still be doing that? As, as Lent begins, we, we wonder what, what are the things that Jesus has asked us to do? What are the things we've been unwilling to do? What are the things we find challenging to do? And whereas Jonah is confronted with the challenge to follow the word of God, and he can only go to the sea, and then from the sea into a whale, you and I, when confronted with the word of God, get to go to a table. Where Jesus, the one who went into the belly of the beast and came out, has prepared a place for you.
and say, you are loved and forgiven. And yes, to follow me is to embrace a great challenge, but I've made a way. And so in a minute, as we do every week, we'll come to the table to celebrate the work that Jesus has done on our behalf and to hopefully follow him with more courage, conviction, and clarity than our friend Jonah.